I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 16. I um, have um, gotten what I believe is some very specific direction on, on a series that I want to begin to teach. And um, it was something that the Lord really impressed upon me to teach to, to start the new year off with. Now, I know this is the, the 30th of December, and, but this is as close as I could get to the new year and, and uh, uh, without going past it. So we wanted to start a new series this morning. I want to use as a text scripture to begin with. I don't know if we'll use it for the entirety of the time, but John chapter 16 and verse 13, Jesus is talking about and has been talking about for the previous two chapters uh, to his disciples about what things are going to be like after he goes to the cross, after he departs from them. Now, they didn't understand uh, specifically all of the things that he was saying. I, I, I wouldn't imagine. I can't uh, fathom that they would have. Uh, we know that after he was raised from the dead, he upbraided them for their hardness of heart and their unbelief about certain things that he's telling them even now in these chapters. So, uh, you know, some of it they got, some of it they didn't get, but we certainly have a record of it to understand as we look back. And uh, a big part of what he's talking about is the, the work of the Holy Spirit. He calls him the Comforter. He calls him the Spirit of Truth. Notice one thing that he says specifically in John chapter 16 and verse 13. Jesus said, How be it when he, the Spirit of Truth, has come? Well, the Spirit of Truth or the Holy Ghost or the Comforter, whatever name you want to get assigned to Him, He can't come until Jesus is raised from the dead. But He says, Howbeit when He, the Spirit of Truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. Now, this is a real precious Scripture to me, but it took me many years to really see the things that are the most precious to me now. I used to read this and think, okay, uh, the only thing I saw is he'll show you things to come. And I would think of things like naturally, okay, he'll show you the next good, big stock to buy. He'll show you the next great investment to make. He'll show you the next thing that'll, that'll put you over in life and, and get you a pocket full of money or whatever. I, I, I just thought naturally about some of the things that I was reading. But I want you to notice, let's take this thing apart. And really the first part of the scripture is what I want to focus on. He said, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come. I want you to notice, folks, the Holy Ghost is the spirit of truth. Now Jesus said in John chapter 17, not when he's talking to his disciples, but John chapter 17 gives us a record of Jesus' prayer. The last recorded prayer that we have, or at least of any length, that we have before Jesus was taken captive and began the crucifixion process. He was beaten in, in Pilate's court and, and those types of things. This is the last recorded prayer that we have. And Jesus said in John chapter 17, he said, Father, sanctify them, the disciples, not just the 12, but those that would believe on him through their word, which is you and me. He's saying, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. So I want you to understand that the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, is the spirit of the word. Those are interchangeable terms. The Word of God, the Bible, this New Testament, this revelation that we have is not, does not contain truth. It is truth. Now, truth is a, is a real difficult term for a lot of people nowadays, it seems, because nobody wants to say or, or, or commit themselves to any absolute position on anything. This, there's this idea in, in, uh, in the world, certainly, and it uh, it's, seems to be prevalent in the church to some degree, that truth is relative, that what's true for you may not be true for me. Well, folks, that's never true. The truth is always true. Now, you may have one point of view, and I may have another point of view, but that doesn't change the truth. See, people can disagree on things. Some people disagree on when Jesus is coming back. That's not going to have one effect on when he comes. 
Some people think that Jesus is coming back at the end of the tribulation. Well, he is. But that's not the first time he's coming back. He's coming back to get us before it begins. I like what one preacher said, uh, just using common sense, which isn't very common nowadays, it doesn't seem. But he said, what? The Bible talks about the church being the bridegroom of Christ, or the bride of Christ, and Jesus being the bridegroom, the church is the bride. What father-in-law would beat up the bride right before the wedding? Now, folks, I know there's no theological position for that, but that is really good, good logic. But my point is this, whether you believe that Jesus is coming back at the end of the tribulation, whether the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation, the middle of the tribulation, the beginning of the tribulation, Jesus is coming back when he's coming back. So we can have different points of view on that. We can disagree based on different scriptures, but the truth is still the truth, whether we interpret it correctly or not. So when the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, that means that the Holy Spirit is first and foremost going to guide you into the word of God. Because that's what he is the spirit of. That's why it's so important for us to recognize, Paul said it this way, he said all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Why? Because he's the spirit of truth. I, I take great exception to a lot of the, the, the popular preaching nowadays that some of the New Testament is not written for the church. I understand their point of view. I understand their, their, their reason for saying that. I understand their, um, uh, their argument for it. But it's just not true. I'm sorry, it's just not true. Why? Because the Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. And, it, and, and there is nothing that gets me crispier than somebody trying to take the Bible away from me. Whether it's somebody saying a scripture doesn't belong to me, or whether it's somebody saying that some part of scripture has passed away, or whatever the case is. If God wasn't smart enough to tell us what we needed to know to live by today, then what are we doing trying to worship him? And I know that sounds sacrilegious to a lot of people, but that's just, as, just the way I approach things. Jesus said, Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. The word guide is used five times in the New Testament. Three, uh, twice it's used as the, translated the word guide. Three times it's translated lead. And almost every case is talking about somebody leading somebody by the hand. Jesus used it a couple of times where he talked about the blind leading the blind. He's talking about being guided, led. He's talking about being carried into a certain place. And what is that certain place that the Holy Spirit is going to carry you or guide you or direct you to? He's going to direct you into the truth. Again, the Word of God is truth. So first and foremost, the Holy Spirit is going to guide you into the truth of the Word. But this word truth also means reality. He's going to guide you into the reality of the Word. The first and foremost place that the Holy Ghost is going to guide you, the number one thing that the Holy Spirit is going to do in your life, is going to guide you into the understanding or the knowledge of the Word of God concerning the realities of what Jesus has provided for us. That means, therefore, that since we know that the Bible says we've been made righteous, the Bible says we have authority in the name of Jesus, the Bible says nothing is impossible to those who believe, therefore, when we put those things together and understand that, that truth of the Word of God, we can say that the Holy Spirit will guide you into victory. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all victory. That's what he's saying, folks. Because the reality of what Jesus has done for us is victory. Oh, but Pastor Mike, don't you know the Bible says we're going to have tribulation down here on the earth? Yeah, it does. It's talking about tests, trials, and adversities. Howbeit, in this life you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. 
In other words, there are things we're going to go through. But the, the, the important point is you go through them, you don't live in them. And on the other side of going through them is victory for the believer. So the spirit of truth, his number one job that Jesus talks about here in this verse is to guide you into victory. There is no situation that you will ever encounter that God is not trying to get you into victory. Well, then why are so many Christians defeated? The answer is real simple. They don't know how to be led by the Spirit. They don't know how to be guided into the victory that the Holy Ghost is designed and destined and ordained to accomplish in your life. Now, that's what I want to talk to you about, folks, for the next however long. I never know how, how long to tell you we're going to study on the subject. I, um, it never becomes an issue to me until the audio department says, you know, a 52-tape series just really doesn't work. <laughs> so we change the title and break it up, but it's all still the same thing. But the thing that the, that the Lord has really impressed upon me to um, uh, very specifically, sometimes I have a witness about certain things to, to minister, and other times he tells me. This is one he told me to teach. And that is, I want to teach you on what we will, I guess we'll call, for lack of a better title, and I'm not ever good on titles, but the Spirit-led life. Because I don't believe that there's ever been a point in time in the history of mankind where it's been more important to be led by the Spirit than it is today. The Bible talks about perilous times in the last days. It talks about men getting worse and worse. Folks, if that does not fit to the description of what we're living in now, I don't know what does. And as a result, the Bible says, the devil, knowing his time is short, he steps up and he begins to bring things in tribulation and trouble and adversity and stuff like that on the earth too. So the closer and closer you get to the end, the more and the more the devil steps up his activities. Well, what are the, what's the devil's purpose? What activities is he behind and for what purpose? Well, he's trying to destroy those that, specifically, he's trying to destroy the lives of those that call Jesus their Lord and Savior. You know as well as I do that the, the worst thing, the most damaging thing, the most personal thing that somebody could do is try to harm your kids. Well, I wonder if the devil's figured that out with God. Absolutely. And that's the reason. The devil doesn't care about you as an individual. It, it's, it's amazing to me how many times people talk about how they're being attacked by the devil and they bring some kind of pride into it. Boy, the devil's really after me. Like he never bothers the rest of us, you know. Yeah, boy, God must really have something in mind for my life because the devil's been after me. <laughs> you idiot. The devil's after you because you're alive. But he does. He wants to destroy you. You know what all this economic trouble is about in the country? To rob believers of the opportunity to give. If the government controls your money, that means you can't give. Folks, this is not just about a fiscal cliff. This is about a supernatural operation of the devil. I know some people disagree with that, and that's fine. If they have a world point of view rather than a Bible point of view, then I understand how they would miss that. The Bible says the natural man can't receive the things of the Spirit of God. So it's real easy to tell in the last days who's thinking naturally and who's thinking spiritually. Simple thing, very simple thing. So let's talk about being led by the Spirit. Now, in order to do that, we're going to have to lay some foundation work. Because unfortunately, this is being one of the most important things that a Christian needs to know seems to be one of the last things most Christians do know. So we're going to have to lay some foundation. Now, I want to remind you, and you can turn here if you want to, of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. 
Here's the story of creation, and God says what his original purpose for man is. He said, let us make man in our own image, and let them, meaning male and female, let man, mankind, have dominion over all the works of our hands. So what does that tell us? That tells us, number one, God made man differently than any other thing that he made here on the earth, and he made man for the purpose, express purpose, of having authority on this earth. That's what the Bible tells us. Now, what made man different from anything else that God created? We know certain things that after God created Adam, he put him in the Garden of Eden. He brought all the animals. He brought everything that he created. He walked them, paraded them in front of, of Adam, and Adam's the one that named them. Imagine the intellect that Adam started off with. Now, he got stupid real quick. <laughs> but the intellect that he started with was phenomenal. I mean, would you be able to name the animals, never having seen stuff? How do you come? How do, duh. That's mind-boggling. I want you to understand, folks, what this in, uh, implies to us is that he had an understanding of creation. He had an understanding of what God made, why he made certain things. He understood not only the, the, the hows, but he understood the purposes of things. And it's like God is bringing all of creation in front of him saying, okay, I made all of this for you. You're the one that has authority over it, so now you call it whatever you want to. The next thing it says is that Adam realized God had already determined that, God, that Adam needed help. <laughs> Pretty easy to figure out. And so he brings all of the creation in front of him. Adam, Adam names all the animals. And it says Adam found nothing that he could fellowship with. In other words, it's like God says, you need help. Let's start with the animals. Adam looks and says, uh, the giraffe's just not going to do it. That rhinoceros, there's <laughs> just nothing there. It's like God shows him in everything that was created, there was nothing in his class of being. Now, that's an important point because when it says God made man in his own image, we think of physical appearance. There is some similarity to what the Bible tells us about God's physical appearance and the way that man is made, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about God making Adam, mankind, in his class of being, and it's the only thing that he created that was. And he's proving it to Adam by bringing him all the animals. Adam ex uh, expresses whatever intellectual foundation or knowledge that he has as, a, a, as the source of that being the Spirit of God within him. The Bible says God breathed into man and he became a living soul. Well, other stuff is alive too. The giraffe is just as alive as Adam was. The monkey is just as alive as Adam was, but the monkey wasn't in God's class of being. There was still something about man that, that set him apart. What was it about man that set him apart? I want you to look with me over to John chapter 4, because I want you to see this. I could quote the verse of Scripture. I will quote the verse of Scripture, but I want you to see what the, the context is and what Jesus is saying. He did something in creation. God did something in making man that set him apart from everything else that he made. Now, folks, if you understand this, it blows the idea of evolution out of the water. He made man in his image. In other words, the same way that God is. Jesus, in talking with the woman at the well of Samaria, gets into a discussion with her. He gives her enough information to kind of draw her in so that he can explain to her why he is sent to the earth. She's a, um, a not a purebred Jew, and so... According to the culture, Jesus, as a Jew, shouldn't even be speaking to her. It kind of takes her by surprise. Nobody else is there, though, so they have this conversation. 
they start talking about worshiping God. She says, okay, you've proven to me that you know God. You've proven that you're a prophet because you've told me things about my life. Jesus said, go call your husband. She said, I don't have one. Jesus said, yeah, you're right. You've had four, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. So living together doesn't make you married in God's sight. Well, we're just married in the Lord. No, you're not. You're just screwing around. <laughs> so he said, go call your husband. He explains what her past is. And, and, and to me, that says that must have been the dominating factor in her life. Married four times. Married in, If she's been married four times, that means she's been divorced four times or left four guys. And now she's living with another guy that she's not married to. Maybe she's just given up on the whole idea of marriage. Now, folks, I'm not putting her down for it. These may have been five terrible guys. I don't know. But nevertheless, Jesus deals with something that is so prevalent in her thinking that it causes her to realize, you're a prophet. You've got something from God. This is knowledge that only somebody could get from God. And then she starts talking to him about worshiping God, what manner to worship God in. In other words, she goes denominational on him. Should we baptize by dunking or sprinkling? Should we worship God in, in uh, Sinai or in Jerusalem? Where should we worship God? Those are both important places as far as the hist history of man and the people of God are concerned. Where should we worship God? What's the formula? And Jesus says in answer to her question about worshiping God in John chapter 4 and verse 24, he said, God is a spirit. Notice he does not say God is spirit. God is not a cloud floating around in heaven. It says God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now the word worship is kind of a, it's, a, it's an unusual word. It's really kind of hard to define. We use a term that we think everybody knows what it means and, and it really doesn't reflect the true meaning. This word worship, we assume as just being you know, giving God glory. We just assume that means singing to God or, or something like that. The word worship implies a lot more than just what we think of when we use the word. Now, there's not different words that are used for it. It's the same word throughout most of the Old and the New Testament. But it implies a bunch of different things. It implies lying prostrate before God. It implies kissing his hand. It implies the thought of adoration. In other words, it implies contact with God. And if you think about it, that's what worship is in its simplest form. It's the means of contacting God. And notice what Jesus says. With that understanding, notice what Jesus said. Jesus said, God is a spirit, number one. And if you're going to contact God, you're going to have to contact him through your spirit or in spirit. Now, if we define truth the same way that we've defined truth in other ways, if Jesus meant the same thing when he used the word truth in John 4.24 as he did when he talked about the truth in John 17 and the truth in John 16, then we have to understand that he's talking about the Word of God too because the Word of God is truth. So if you're going to, have to, if you're going to contact God, there's two ways Jesus said you can do it. You can contact him in spirit and you can contact him through the Word. And I would submit to you that most of the church worship that's taking place on this Sunday throughout this country and the rest of the world has very little to do with spiritual things or the Word. Which means a lot of the church is fooling themselves about contacting God.
Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our own image. How is it possible for man to be in the image of God if he's not made in his likeness, meaning a spirit being? See, that's what set Adam apart from everything else. That's why Adam couldn't find any companionship or fellowship with the animals that came before him. That's why God had to cause the deep sleep to fall upon Adam and take the rib and make a woman, another spirit being, and breathe the breath of life into her so that then they could have fellowship with one another. And Adam recognizes, as soon as he sees Eve, he recognizes there is something different about her. This is not your ordinary rhinoceros. He recognizes she's flesh of my flesh. In other words, we're just alike, just like I'm alike in the same image with God. Just like I'm like God, she's like me. We're all in God's class of being. Well, what makes you in God's class of being? Being made a spirit. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27, David said this. He said, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. Now, the word candle is the word, literally the word light or lamp. It's all they had in those days, in David's day, to, uh, to light their houses, to, to, to light their path if they're walking in the dark or whatever. It was their means of light. So he's saying the spirit of man is the light of the Lord. Now in, in Psalm 18 in verse 28, David writing a psalm said this, and I have no doubt that he's talking about the new birth. I have no doubt that he's pointing forward to a time, whether he knows it or not, and we don't know that he did. But he's pointing forward to the time where Jesus would come and recreate us, make us new, new creatures in Christ Jesus. Jesus told uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said, you must be born again. It's not enough to care about God. Nicodemus already cared about God. It's not enough to keep the law of Moses. Nicodemus was keeping the law of Moses. He was a rabbi. He said, you must be born again. There's got to be a change in nature. There's got to be a change in the spiritual condition of man if you're going to make contact with God and live with him in heaven. So in Psalm 18, verse 28, David said, Thou, Lord, will light my candle. Now, if the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, he's saying God's going to do something to change man's spiritual condition or the light within man. He said, Thou will enlighten my darkness. Now, folks, that's the very reason why I believe when Adam and Eve fell, the light went out. God commanded them in the Garden of Eden. He said, you can have everything that's here. Everything is under your authority, but there's one tree that you should not eat of. That's the only law they had. They didn't have any sacrifices to make. They didn't have any forgiveness to ask for. They didn't have anything. They walked perfectly in union and fellowship with God as equals. Equals not because they're the creator of the universe, co-equal and, and as creators of the universe, but because they've been given authority by God who is in their class of being through creation, not by anything they did of themselves, but because they were created in God's class of being, they now have been given authority on the earth. It says they were naked and they were not ashamed. But as soon as they disobeyed God and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's when their eyes were opened and they were ashamed. They saw they were naked and they became ashamed. They're just as naked before they eat as they are after they eat. Why were they not ashamed before they ate and were ashamed after they ate? Well, where the Bible says their eyes were opened, something changed. Something changed. Now, we talked about Adam's intellect. 
the source of everything that Adam had, the source of everything that Adam was made to be, both Adam and Eve. The source was the fact that they had the life of God on the inside of them. Man was different in that it was the only thing that God created that he looked face to face in and put his spirit in. He breathed in them the breath of life. That would be the equivalent. I don't know if it actually happened this way, but it would be the equivalent of God holding Adam up by the armpits and breathing into him life, and all of a sudden Adam's walking and talking. Nothing else did God create in that manner. Nothing else. He just said, let the earth bring forth. Let there be cattle. Let there be the, the, the stuff that creeps and walks on the earth and other things. That's how it happened. God didn't breathe into anything except man. So the source of everything that man has is the very essence of God. It was his breath, his life, his spirit that brought man into a living, created soul. I believe that man was clothed with the glory of God. We know that when Moses was on the mountain, Mount Sinai, he spent 40 days up there in the presence of God. And when he came down, he had the glory of God shining on his face to such a degree that people ran from him. They had to put a bag over Moses' head because he was scary. Well, he had the glory of God in a much lesser way than Adam and Eve had with, because it was in them. It was just surrounding Moses. He was just in the presence of God. It's like, being in the, it's like the difference in being in water and having water in you. So if Moses' face shined because he was just in the presence of God for 40 days, what do you think Adam and Eve looked like because they had the Spirit of God inside them in creation? I think they had the glory of God surrounding them. I think that they were clothed with the glory of God and that when their eyes were opened, that's when that light went out. They, we know that in Psalm, by Psalm 18, David speaks of man being a darkened condition because he said, Thou, Lord, will light my candle. He's looking for something that God does, some work of God, certainly it's through the Messiah. He's looking for some work of God to bring light back to man's spirit, which means he had to be dark. That's why the born-again experience is so important. That's why Jesus said, you must be born again. Without the born-again experience, there's no light inside man. Now, I want you to look with me to the Old Testament. There's two verses of Scripture, two portions of Scripture that are real important that speak to the new birth. Ezekiel chapter 36, and I think it's Jeremiah 31. There are many other Scriptures that speak toward um, salvation, but two specifically that talk about the new birth. Let's start with Jeremiah 31, starting in verse uh, 33. He says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with them, make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. And we know the law is the word of God. All they had in the Old Testament was the, word of, was, uh, was the law of Moses. But we know that the law represents the word of God. Thank God we don't have the law of Moses to keep now. We have the law of love. So he says, after those days, I will put my law in their hearts. Romans 5.5 5 says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts when we're born again. At the point of the new birth, that's when the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. That is the law of God for the New Testament. Jesus said there's only one law, and that's the law of love in the new covenant. Not so for them. 
They had 630 laws. We've got one. Ours is just as hard to keep as theirs were. So he says, after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. Now, why does he say their inward parts? Well, Paul uses this terminology. He said, I delight after the law of God in the inward man, Romans 7, 22. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. In other words, he's saying, it's my spirit that delights in the law of God. My flesh doesn't always like it. Paul said the outward man is perishing or decaying. We certainly know that's true, don't we? The older we get, the more true that seems to appear. But he said the inward man is renewed day by day. Paul talks about the difference between the flesh and the spirit, using the terms the outward man and the inward man. Jeremiah is speaking by the Spirit of God and says that God puts his law in the spirit, the inward man. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about that being part of the light of God at, at salvation, at the new birth. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. Hearts is another reference to spirit. He's not talking about the physical organ that pumps blood in your body. There's no love in the physical organ of your heart any more than there's any love in your nose. The physical heart is part of the flesh, just like your nose and your hands are part of your flesh. He's talking about the heart meaning the spirit of man. So I'll put my law in their inward parts, my, their spirits, and write it in their hearts, their spirits. And, thy will, and, and will be their God, and they will be my people. Now notice verse 34. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Please notice that he's saying the key to knowing God is the Spirit. And not just what you're told. He's saying things will change when I change them spiritually. When I put my spirit, myself, my word in their spirits. By the way, uh, 1 Peter 1.23 says we are born again by the incorruptible seed of the God's word. So when he says I'll put my word or my law in their spirit, he's talking about being born again. That's what you're born again by is by the word of God. And he said the end result of that is when man's spirit is, according to David, enlightened, when we come back into a place where we're no longer spiritually dead, you remember that was the warning that God gave Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt surely die. That's really kind of a, a marginal translation because it doesn't say in the day that you eat thereof you'll die. It says death will begin to overtake you. Or death will catch up to you. They were without death. They were immortal in the Garden of Eden until they disobeyed God and ate of the tree. And what happened? Immediately their eyes were opened and death began to overtake them. Now it still took 930 years to catch up with Adam before he died physically. So he can't be talking about death in a physical sense. No, he's talking about spiritual death. Something happened inside of them so that their eyes were opened and the light of God's glory went out in them. So he says, when I change you spiritually, when I bring the new birth into, the, into play, when I cause you to be born again, that's when everybody will know God. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. You can't know God, you can't contact God except by your spirit. Folks, if we just stop there, there's a tremendous question that needs to be asked. 
since God placed such an emphasis on the spirit of man being the only way you can contact God, and God's whole purpose was to have contact or fellowship with mankind, why does the church know so little about being spirit beings? Why does the church know so little about being led by the Spirit? Why does the church know so little, virtually nothing, about contacting God in spirit? Turn with me over to Ezekiel chapter 36. Here's the second portion of Scripture that speaks more clearly and more specifically to the new birth than any other that I know of. Ezekiel 36, let's start in verse 35. God said, then I will sprinkle clean water upon you. The Bible says we're, washed with the, the, we're cleansed with the washing of water by the word. He's still talking about the word of God as being the source of salvation, the source of the, source of the new birth. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and all your idols will I cleanse you. Now what is that cleansing going to result in? Notice verse 30, or Verse 26. A new heart also will I give you. What do you mean by heart? And a new spirit will I put within you. He's talking about heart and spirit as being interchangeable terms. Now, not every place the Bible talks about the heart is he talking about the spirit. But in these instances, it is. And he, he identifies that. He defines it. He says, a new heart I'll put in you. A new spirit will I put within you. So he's talking about the heart being the spirit of man. Folks, the new birth is not God, recre uh, not God uh, cleansing or just fixing up what was the old dead spirit on the inside of you. He takes that old dead spirit out and puts a new spirit in. So where David says, Thou will, will light my candle and enlighten my darkness, he's saying, You'll give me a new spirit. Now, Pastor Mike, how does that work? I have no idea. But I know it happens faster than you can take a breath. Because the Bible says the body without the spirit is dead. So it happens so instantaneously, you don't have time to die when the exchange is being made. We get all upset about God doing miracles. Oh, you think God could do that? He saved you. He exchanged a dead spirit for a new spirit, and you never even knew until after it was over. You think God doing a miracle in your body is going to be a problem? So he said, verse 26 again, a new heart will I also give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. Stony heart refers to the dead spirit that, result as a, that came as a result of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. All of mankind died when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Every person that's been born into the earth has been born into death. Now that death didn't overtake them instantly when they were born naturally, but when they came to the understanding of the difference between right and wrong, that's when spiritual death overtook us as individuals. I'll take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. In other words, a spirit that's tender toward God. And I will put my spirit within you. Here's the lighting your candle. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Folks, I want you to understand he's saying you can't even keep the word of God unless you're alive spiritually. That's why you can't contact God except or apart from, except by your spirit. And apart from your spirit, there is no contact with God. There's no contact with God apart from his word because the word of God is the spirit of God in action. You are a spirit being. Well, I don't feel like a spirit being, Pastor Mike. 
It takes a while to get there. It takes a while on focusing on spiritual things more than natural things because we are so given to our natural inclinations. We're so given to our five physical senses. Everything we've learned here on the earth, we've learned through our five physical senses. Everything they ever teach you in, in, in the highest level of learning, universities, master's degrees, graduate degrees, whatever, all comes through the five physical senses. Now, education is important. Education is a great thing to have. But you need to realize that if you get all the education in the world, the smartest person, the most educated person in the world does not in and of itself, by that education, guarantee that they're going to have any contact with God whatsoever. So I would submit to you as important as education is, when you look at from the standpoint of eternity, when you look from the standpoint of what Jesus has done for us, it doesn't even match spiritual knowledge. Doesn't even come close. Now I'm running out of time on this, so turn with me over to, uh, let me show you a couple of things in the New Testament. Turn with me over to, to uh, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Paul talks about his own experience. This is later in his life. Philippians is one of the last uh, letters that he wrote. And he had some interesting things to say. And, and we'll look in the, the weeks to come, we'll look at some things that Paul talked about, the contrast between the natural man and the spiritual man, the contrast between your spirit and your flesh, the contra contrast between your spirit and your soul. Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword dividing even dividing asunder between spirit and soul. If spirit and soul were the same thing, they couldn't be divided. So the spirit and the soul are not the same things. Now sometimes those words are used interchangeably. And so you have to see the context to figure out what he's really talking about, whoever the writer is. But the spirit and the soul in its specific and, 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 and um, uh, most definable terms, the spirit and soul are not the same thing. Paul wrote to the church, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Paul said, I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said man's three parts. Made in the image of God, man is three parts. He is a spirit, he has a soul, and he lives in a body. You don't contact God by your, through your body. You don't contact God through your soul. You contact God through your spirit. The Bible's real clear on that. Spirit is the only thing that you can make contact with God in. But I would suggest to you that most of the education we do and, and in, uh, participate in in life, we emphasize the body, physical training, or we emphasize the soul, intellectual training or development. What about training your spirit? What about developing in spirit? Well, the world puts no emphasis on that whatsoever. If they even admit that man is a spirit being or that there is such a thing as spiritual development, they say, well, the church ought to do all that. Like it's not important. We'll take care of the important stuff. We'll educate the minds of our young people. We'll encourage them to go out and play 60 minutes a day. Get some kind of physical exercise. But that spiritual stuff, you know, separation of church and state, let all the church do that. Well, okay, if you never want to have contact with God, meaning spend eternity in hell, then I guess spiritual development wouldn't be too important, would it? Do you see how everything is backwards in the world? The things we emphasize have temporal or temporary benefits. The things that the world ignores has eternal benefits. I don't know about you, but I'm more interested in eternity than I am the next few years here on the earth. 
Okay, Philippians chapter 1. Let's start reading in verse... uh, Oh, I don't want to go back to the whole thing. Let's start in verse 21. Paul is talking about his own experience. He's talking about his own decision. And notice what he said. He said, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, what, what does he mean by die? We know he's spiritually alive. He's the one that tells us that Jesus was made sin for us, that we might be made righteousness, the righteousness of God in him. So he's not talking about spiritual death. The dying he's talking about is physical death. So he says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What's he saying? He's saying, if I live on the earth, I'm going to live like Jesus. But if I die, I gain. Now, gain means you profit, right? Gain means there's some benefit. He's saying, it's better if I die. Well, better for who? That's the point that he's making. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh. Now, notice what he's talking about. He's saying, if I, the real me, the man on the inside, my spirit, the eternal part of me, if I live in the flesh, he's saying, I have a choice of where I'm going to dwell. I'm going to exist. I, the man on the inside, am going to exist. I'm just not sure whether I want to exist here on the earth or if I want to go and be with Christ. That's the point that he's making. But if I live in the flesh, notice, please notice, this is so important. This will get you so far ahead spiritually. This will help you make giant strides spiritually. If you learn the difference between you, the person on the inside, and the body you live in, that will help you see things from a spiritual perspective. It'll help you realize that the things that your body does are not necessarily what you on the inside wanted to do. The things that the devil trips you up in, the sins and the wrongful actions that the devil trips you up physically into participating in does not mean that you have sinned from the inside. Because your heart may have been saying, I didn't want to do that all the time. Paul said that. Paul said the things that I want to do are the things I don't find my body doing. Romans chapter 7. He said, and the things that I want to do from the inside, from my spirit, those are the things that I find the hardest to do in the flesh. Well, what's he saying? He's saying there's a difference between the inside of me and the outside of me. The inside of me is the real me. You've heard people when they've done stupid things and have to go apologize in public for things, they'll say stuff like, well, that's not the real me. Well, what do they mean? (laughs) A lot of times we don't know. In most cases, that means, oops, I got caught. But Paul talks about that as having a real difference between the man on the inside and the man on the outside. That's what he's contrasting here. He said, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, if I stay here in this body, if I stay here in this body, This is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose, I wot not. Now, notice he's saying he has a choice. He's saying, I'm not sure what I'm going to choose. Do you know living and dying is a choice? Paul says so. Oh, Pastor Mike, that can't be right. Well, then tear that page out. Paul said that everything he wrote was inspired by the Holy Ghost. He's either lying or he's telling the truth, folks. There is no middle ground here. Now, I know a lot of Christians live in a lot of gray areas, but when it comes to the Word of God, it's either true or it's a lie. There's no half-truths where the Bible is concerned. If it's not the whole truth, if it's not the absolute truth, then it's not true at all. Paul said, I've got a choice on living and dying. 
Well, he can't have a choice and be different from you because God doesn't play favorites. God, there's no respecter of persons with God, or God is no respecter of persons. So if he's got a choice, that means you've got a choice too. So he says, I'm not sure what I'm going to choose. I'm not sure if I'm going to choose here to stay here in the flesh. Verse 23, for I am in a strait betwixt two. This is a hard decision for me to make. That's what he's saying. This is a hard decision for me to make because I have a desire to depart. I, the man on the inside, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Not just a little bit better. It's far better. We get so wound up about people that died before their times. Oh, Pastor Mike, what about so-and-so? They were a dear saint of God. They were believing God for healing, and they died. Folks, whether you died, no matter what the circumstances of your death, young, old, whatever, you're better off. The worst day in heaven is better than the best day you could ever have here on earth. Why? Because you depart and be with Christ. Yeah, but... But what if they failed to receive their healing? Listen, if they were trying to receive their healing, if they were trying to operate in faith, God counts that as a victory. We judge things by the outcome. God doesn't. God looks on the heart. The Bible says all the heroes of faith in, in Hebrews chapter 11, all those heroes of faith, it said every one of them died in faith. Not obtaining the promises. What are you saying, Pastor Mike, that dying in faith is a good thing? I don't want to die any other way. Now, you can judge the outcome from my life if you want to. That's fine. And, and you have every right and every responsibility to do so. But God always looks on the heart. I know of people that have been believing God for healing and believing God for healing for several years. There's been struggle for them. Maybe it was a, a, a terminal situation. And they just got tired and decided to go home. And people on the outside, well, I just don't understand it, why God didn't cause their healing to manifest. And I know all the time, sometimes from things that they said to me before they left, I know all the time they got exactly what they wanted. And God, they entered into the gates of glory because God counted it to their credit. You fought the good fight and just decided to go home. I don't know about you, but at the end of a day, a long day, sometimes I get tired and want to go home. Why would it be different spiritually? Paul's saying he's ready to go home. He said, this is a difficult decision for me. I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Now, notice who wants to go. He does, the man on the inside. It's not his flesh that wants to go. His flesh is not going anywhere. He has a desire to depart and be with Christ. Folks, what happens to you when you die? What happens to the Christian when he dies? He instantly departs to be with Christ. He goes immediately, instantly into the presence of God. How can that not be a good thing? Now, don't get me wrong, folks. I'm planning to live my time out here on the earth. I'm planning to live to 94 years of age. If Jesus wants to come back before that, fine with me. But if he doesn't, I'm planning to live out my length of time. And for me, I believe, I've talked to the Lord about it, I believe it's 94 years of age. So I've got a ways to go yet. But let's just say I get to 80, or I get to 85, and I decide, you know, Lord, that 94 that I was believing for, I'm kind of satisfied where I am now. I have every confidence that there'll be pl plenty of young, immature Christians that'll say, well, see, he didn't make it. 
The Bible says, well, long life will satisfy you and show you a salvation. Well, how long is that? Till you're satisfied. Paul seems to be pretty satisfied. He seems to be ready to go. There's only one thing that keeps him here. And he tells him, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh, for the real me to stay here in the flesh is more needful for you. That's the only thing that's creating a dilemma for him. He's saying it's better for you if I stay here. Otherwise, I'd be out of here. So what does he conclude? Verse 25, and having this confidence, in other words, knowing is better for you that I stay, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of the faith. In other words, he's saying, since it is better for you if I stay here, I can't go yet as much as I want to. Now, please notice the difference in him, the real man on the inside, the spirit that Paul is referring to as opposed to the flesh and life here on the earth. He's saying my living in the flesh is not the real me. It's the action that I need to take for your benefit. But the real me can go if I want to go. Now turn back with me to, John, to uh, Luke chapter 16. Here's what things were like before Jesus was raised from the dead. Before people could be born again. Since Jesus is the only way to the Father, before Jesus was raised from the dead, there was no way for somebody to depart and be with Christ. There was no in Christ available for the Old Testament saints or even those during the time of the Gospels. It was only under the New Covenant after Jesus was raised from the dead and the Spirit of God recreated man's spirit. That was when being in Christ was made available. So let's see what things were like before and look at it from a standpoint of the Spirit versus the flesh as Jesus told us a story in the Gospels. Let's start in verse 19 of Luke chapter 16. He said, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in fur in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Please notice the word certain. Do you see that? There was a certain rich man. It's impossible for this to be a parable. And a lot of Christians, a lot of teachers, a lot of theologians say, well, Jesus is just telling us a parable. It's impossible to have a parable with something identified as a certain something. Because a parable is one thing that's like another. For example, Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a man planting seed into the ground. He didn't say the kingdom of God is a certain man planting seed into the ground because that would stop it from being a parable. The fact that he said there was a certain rich man tells us that this was a real story that he's relating to us. There was a certain rich man who's clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day, and there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring, talking about Lazarus, desi Satan, or, uh, excuse me, Lazarus desired to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that as the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, the rich man also died and was buried. Now, folks, when we think of the beggar, Lazarus, and we think of the rich man, please understand that the Bible tells us what happened to both of their bodies. Lazarus died, doesn't tell us about his burial. He was too poor to have a burial of any type that would be defined. But the rich man died and had a funeral. He was buried. Their bodies go into the earth. But that is not the real them. The rich man continues to exist. Lazarus continues to exist. So who is the rich man? He's talking about the spirit. Who is Lazarus? He's talking about the spirit. Folks, man is an eternal spirit. He's made in the image of God, which means his spirit cannot die when we define dying as ceasing to exist. 
Man's spirit, every spirit, saved or unsaved, continues to exist for eternity. Spiritual death is separation from God. Physical death is separation from the body. But the real man on the inside, the spirit, because every human being is, more, is made in the image of God as a spirit being, it exists, that spirit exists throughout eternity. So you're going to live for eternity, either in heaven or in hell. That's why the three most important things about eternity are location, location, location. <laughs> and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. I love that. Here's a guy that had adversity all of his life, but he trusted in a Messiah to come. And no matter what problems he had in life, when the time came for his spirit to separate from his body, the angels took him to the best place that he could possibly go, which in that time was Abraham's bosom. It's also known as paradise. The rich man died and he was buried. Doesn't say a word about being carried anywhere, does it? The rich man died and was buried. And in hell, he, the rich man, or the rich man his spirit still exists. His body's buried, but he still exists. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. I'm not exactly sure how this works, folks, but the implication is a part of the torment of hell is that you see you didn't have to be there. And he, still talking about the rich man, cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. You know what's interesting to me about this rich man? The rich man, we know about Lazarus. Lazarus must have trusted in the Messiah to come. That's why he goes to Abraham's bosom. The rich man must have trusted in himself and his riches. How do we know that? Well, one thing is we can see where he wound up. He's not trusting in a Messiah. He's not trusting in the promises of the law. But another thing is, Lazarus is in trouble. He's so used to having servants, having other people do things for him, that being in hell, he says, let Lazarus come down here and dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Now, if I'm the rich man, I'd say, can I come there and drink something? I'd look for any opportunity I had to get out of that place I was in. But he is so accustomed. Folks, I want you to understand, people are the same here on the earth or in heaven. He is so accustomed to people serving him, doing it for him, waiting on him, that he's looking for Lazarus to leave where he was. You know, that old nasty guy, beggar. Who is he? Send him down here. Because I need some water. I see Lazarus over there. He's laying under a palm tree, eating grapes. Send him over here. I need something. Wow. He's really hot stuff, isn't he? <laughs> Literally. Tormented in this flame. A lot hotter than he ever planned to be, I guess. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thou good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Let me, guard, let me warn you about uh, uh, interpreting this scripture in a certain way. Don't think this is saying because Lazarus suffered in life. That's why he has a good eternity. And because you had a good experience in life, that's why you're now in hell. That's not what he's saying. Because, folks, if that were the case, Abraham wouldn't be there to be saying it. This is a conversation between two rich men. Abraham was a rich man, wasn't he? 
The Bible says God made Abraham very rich in silver and cattle and gold. Who do you think was richer here on the earth, the rich man or Abraham? My guess is Abraham, because Abraham and a lot stuffed together was too much for the land to bear them both. So don't let the devil try to tell you, well, see, that it's, that's the way it is. If you have good things here on the earth, it's going to be bad for you in heaven. Or if you have bad things, we have to have bad things here on the earth and have to scrape by in order to get to heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, remember the comparison on earth? You had good stuff and Lazarus didn't. Now the comparison is the same, but it's in reverse. Lazarus has good things and now you don't. Why did Lazarus and, and the rich man have different experiences here on the earth? Because they used what they had in different ways. Lazarus wasn't rich and didn't have his body full of sores because that's what God wanted for him. God would have brought him victory. God would have brought him provision. The Old Testament blessing of Abraham covered both of those things. The difference was in what they used while they were here to use it. The rich man used his stuff to gain more. Nothing wrong with that. The problem was he forgot God in the process. Lazarus obviously trusted in the Messiah because he winds up in Abraham's bosom. But that didn't mean he handled everything right when he was here on the earth. Doesn't mean everything was the way that it was because that's how God wanted it to be. Folks, if that's the way it is, nobody gets to heaven. Because who's going to use everything the right way in every way that they can? So don't let the devil twist this around. He's just saying, remember how it was different between you two guys in, on the earth? It may kind of be a dig, did you help Lazarus? He was laid at your gate every day. Did you do anything to help him? I don't know. So he says, Lazarus is now comforted and you are tormented. And beside all this, in other words, even if that weren't the case, beside all this, between us and you, there, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from where you are. In other words, he's saying, you can't cross that divide. What is that divide? That divide is the separation between spiritual life and spiritual death. And the only time you can cross that is when you're here on the earth, not after it's over. Man's time for exercising his options for eternity are now while he's on the earth. It's a spiritual decision that's made based on the Word of God. In other words, he's saying if you want to contact God, you have to, do it, have to start doing that when you're here on the earth, not after it's over. No contacting God after that. If you haven't contacted him on the earth, you're not going to contact him in heaven. Jesus said the only way you can contact or worship him is in spirit and truth. Is there anything that could possibly be more important than spiritual realities and spiritual development? I would submit to you that the answer is no. It's the most important thing there is. Verse 27, then he said, Here's the rich man talking, answering back to, uh, to uh, Abraham. He said, Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Another aspect of, uh, uh, of eternal torment must be remembering the opportunities that you could have used here on the earth and failed to. Now he's concerned about people that are going to follow him there. Was he concerned about that when he was here on the earth? Obviously not. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, Abraham's pointing toward Jesus. 
Whether the rich man knows what he's talking about or not, we don't know. But notice what Abraham's saying. He's saying, if you're not going to hear the word, then it wouldn't matter if Jesus did appear or anybody else appeared from the dead. That's not going to be the thing that convinces somebody. In other words, if you're going to contact God, you're going to contact him through the spirit and by the word. Notice that they both continue to exist. The only question is, where are you going to exist? What about now? Well, what about now comes down to this. If you're going to contact God, the only way you can do it is by your spirit. We better learn some things about being a spirit then, hadn't we? Better learn some things about how to contact God. We better learn some things about the word so that we can make contact with God in spirit and in truth. Because that's the only way you can. Doesn't come through your mind. Doesn't come through your flesh. It's only through your spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for that which you reveal to us. Make clear and make plain to us that we might have fellowship with you and fulfill your original plan for mankind. Thank you, Father, for the authority that we have in the name of Jesus. The authority to believe your word and act on it and receive the benefits. Father, one of the most important things, maybe the most important thing, certainly the beginning point for exercising our authority, is to accept the truth of the word to become children of God. Now with heads bowed and eyes closed, I know the majority of this room has already made Jesus the Lord of their lives. Maybe everybody here, but in case there's anyone here that's never taken a step of action to receive Jesus as the Lord and Savior. I'm not talking about church baptisms. I'm not talking about joining churches. I'm not talking about any of those things. I'm talking specifically what the Bible says to do to be saved. To believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and to confess him with your mouth as Lord and Savior. If you can't point to a moment in time where you did that and know you did it, I want to give you an opportunity to do it this morning. This will be your first opportunity to contact God. And it's a very simple thing. It's a natural action taken because of a choice to believe from your spirit. So if there's anyone here today that would say, Pastor Mike, pray for me. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I want to make contact with God and know that when this earth is over for me, I will depart and be with Christ. I don't want to miss heaven and go to hell. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. If that's your prayer, if that's your desire, please just lift your hand right where you are. By lifting your hand, you're just asking for prayer. That's all you're doing. Anyone, anywhere. All right. I trust that means that everybody here is a child of God. That being the case, I want to ask you to do something different. Say this after me, but let your heart agree with it. Don't just repeat these words. Let your heart agree with what we're going to say. Say, I am a spirit being made in the image of God who's been given authority through the word of God and in the name of Jesus. I've exercised that authority to become a part of God's family to become a child of God, 
to be saved. Therefore, I am righteous. I am made whole. I've been healed by the stripes of Jesus. And everything I put my hand to prospers and comes into victory. I am led of the Spirit of God. Because I'm a child of God, I hear and know His voice. And He always leads me into victory. I cannot fail. I cannot fall. Because the Spirit of truth guides me into all reality and leads me into victory. Victory is mine. I fellowship with my Father freely and openly. Because I'm a spirit being. Thank you, Father, that I'm forgiven. I'm made righteous. Your love is upon me. And your authority is mine. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, let's all stand together. I've got some real good things I want to share with you in this series. You have to start at the beginning point. And so this may seem like some things that you've heard us teach before, but the Lord has given me some, some specific direction about some different ways to go during this series. So I hope you'll be with us for this. I promise it'll be a blessing to you. Not because of me, but because God's Word's true. Amen? Amen. Well, turn around and shake hands with somebody. Tell them I'm glad I'm saved.